Through the Keyhole is fueled by Vanessa House Beer Company, located in Automobile Alley at 118 Northwest 8th Street in Oklahoma City. Stop by the tap room and try the legendary 401k lager or the refreshing destination wedding cerveza with salt and lime. Vanessa House is always brewing something fun like the Pog Hard Seltzer or their sweet and tasty sours. Great beers for a hot Oklahoma summer as we march towards football season. Stop by the Vanessa House Tap Room at 118 Northwest 8th Street in Oklahoma City for good drinks and family-friendly good times. Kids and pets are welcome. Yes, I mentioned kids and pets in the same sentence. Vanessa House Beer Company, the best beer in Oklahoma City. Please drink responsibly. Welcome to Through the Keyhole, an OU fan podcast. I am Peyton Guthrie, your host. Uh, this is our public podcast. It comes out every Sunday. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, remember to give us a review and a, a rate. I think you can only rate five stars, so make sure you uh, do that. And I'm joined uh, with the uh, with our other two coast uh, coast uh, host, as always, uh, Alan Kinney and Matt Burden. Matt, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. We had um, a little... I don't know if you want to call it controversy in the uh, oh, wow. in the household here, myself and my girlfriend. Um, but we sh- I showed up yesterday and we had a we had a new plant in the house, right? Just you know, a harmless new new house plant. Um, and my girlfriend said, "Yeah, I found it in the community area of our apartment." Oh, so she stole a plant. Basically, that's what I'm saying. She stole a plant from someone. Um, so now she. Uh, we're wait- I'm just waiting until we get a big knock on the door, you know, from the police. And then, you know, she's she might have to serve time. She might have to serve time. And that's OK. I'd, I'd still support her. I'd still go see her. I'd go visit her. Um, but she might she might need to pay for her crimes. Yeah, this might be like a, a modern like when they do the reboots and stuff. This could be a reboot of a little shop of horrors. This is how this starts off. Right. Brings okay, a well, it starts the- off. It starts off with a plant, and then where does it go? <laughs> where does it go from there? Do we stop at plants? Who knows? Set her down. <laughs> <laughs> just shows up a car. It was just sitting in the lot, right? Just sitting in the lot. It was down. You know, people just leave it down there in our apartment complex. Who knows? It's it's fair game. Uh, Alan, have you stolen anything recently? <laughs> yeah, man. No, thank. Like, not that I'm aware of. Uh, I can recall, but uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a gateway. It's a gateway. Uh, I don't know. Uh, activity, I guess there, you know, taking, <laughs> taking community stuff and making it your own. Yeah. I'm never, I'm always a little bit, a little bit wary of that for sure. I see you're wearing the, uh, a nice OU shirt. I mean, how much OU gear do you wear out there in the, uh, in the Virginia Arlington type area? And do you get any looks ah. people like Oklahoma? How do you pronounce that? Oh man, uh, let's see here. I mean, I got I got my fair my fair share of you gear. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll get the occasional person, you know. Oh, hey, but you know, uh, but now where I am, it's uh, you, you see a lot more kind of ACC rep or uh, big big ten. Yeah. Oh, uh, also, well, shout out Homefield. Shout out Homefield. I'm wearing the OU basketball. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, you got Very the nice. basketball oh, shirt. Love that. Shout out Homefield, man. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got the I've got a Spurs uh, coffee game. <laughs> oh, nice. That's what we're doing. Yeah, we're doing a, a fashion show. None of you can see this. So, right. Uh, it, yeah. When you do the, when you do the tremendous review podcasting. Or, yeah. If you do the review or you want to email us at keyhole sports at gmail.com, we have an email address uh, to sign up for stuff. Uh, email us what you're wearing, what your shirt. <laughs> we'll read it on. The, we'll read it on air. Uh, <laughs> not in the PG only. <laughs> Please. But let's, let's, yeah, let's jump straight into it. Uh, tomorrow, August 1, today's July uh, 31st. So uh, you may be listening to this tomorrow. ESPN Plus uh, Sooner Vision will have launched. Uh, Joe Castiglione right now is showing clips uh, on his Twitter feed of the uh, 77 to 0 AM game. So straight pettiness by his part. Uh, it, no more uh, pay per view uh, for the uh, uh, directional, um, you know. Southeastern, Midwestern, Missouri State games. Are we excited about this? We're more OU's more fully in bed with ESPN, with more of the TV partnerships. They've kind of lost the ability to have that direct income on them on their third tier rights. Uh, I mean, Alan, is this just easier for everybody, or should we lament a little bit of the uh, loss of uh, freedom from OU as a ESPN SEC uh, contract and territories? Oh man, I'm. I mean, I'm never. <laughs> I'm never uh, that high on anything that gives ESPN more power or weight or anything along those lines. But um, this certainly beats you know uh, alternatives that we've seen in the past. I mean, you know, ESPN Plus is easy to get to. I got it on my TV, my smart TV, you know, my phone, all that different stuff. Uh, you know, the, part of the uh, thing is that a lot of, at least where I was for a long time, it was those Fox Sports regional networks that had all the Sooner Vision content on it. And uh, that was always terrible because, I, I mean, I couldn't even get it that in HD out here. So, you know, I, I was always watching that old standard definition picture and everything like that. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't know. I don't watch that much of, of this content. I'll be I'll be, I'll be frank. But, um, you know, having it with ESPN seems like a, it seems like a win and they'll certainly be, um, you know, shelling out what 55 60 bucks to watch uh, a game on pay-per-view yeah matt are you hooked up to i mean i have the the disney plus bundle i mean are you hooked up on espn plus yep yep i am on espn plus i mean like alan said kind of the ease of access will be i mean it, it's going to be worth it really and like I, I just don't know i don't even know how you go about getting those pay-per-view games anymore like i mean i still i still have cable i mean sue me i mean i just i'm it's it's just me growing up with cable and not knowing anything different <laughs> really is like i'm just scared to i'm scared to cut the cord and go full streaming um but even though i like stream everything anyways so i i'm just wasting money at this point but as far as that like and also i have to my dad is getting a smart tv just so he can like watch this espn stuff <laughs> like, i mean he was due for an upgraded tv anyways but still like uh, it's just crazy. I'm going to have to help him set that up too. So, yeah, you know, make it easier for them, but I'm going to have to be, uh, you know, the geek squad for my dad here coming up in a, in a couple weeks. Yeah. Some of the cool stuff I've, I've seen on, on uh, my Twitter feed so far is like they have archival like film breakdown and formation breakdowns of like Mike Leach. And there's like a 28 year old Brent Venables talking about, you know, a gaps and B gaps and stuff. That type of stuff I'll probably watch immediately once it gets like mm-hmm. to see yeah. it. Uh, and then hope that keeps continually being updated. 
I mean, and, and the reason why I was kind of, I mean, yeah, the pay-per-view thing, obviously no, everyone's probably extremely excited about not having to pay 50 bucks for that game. This is part of the subscription thing, but the rest of this stuff, like what, do, what does Oklahoma state, what do they call theirs? It's like orange cowboy vision or something. They, they have some online uh, uh, digital app type thing in which they, they update it with uh, original content and they do like archival things and they break stuff down like from the vault and everything. What's completely driven by Oklahoma state. Like they're the ones who are cultivating it and all that type of stuff. Um, this seems like OU is going to toss it, toss all their content at the mothership and then the mothership, you know, ESPN will decide what they want to do with it to a little bit. Um, I, I just hope they're, we as a consumer don't get lost in the wash a little bit when it comes, comes to that stuff. But like you said, I, I've got the, I've got the smart TV. Uh, I'm not going to name the brand cause no free ads. Um, <laughs> and speaking of ads, make sure you enjoy it. And that's the house of <laughs> beverage <laughs> at some point in time, as you heard off the top, but it should just be super, super ease of access. I mean, normally I have to skip uh, that game. Like I just like watch quote unquote watch on Twitter as we pay uh, play Missouri state or Northwestern Kentucky uh, college, you know, something like that. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. Now I will say the thing that I'm interested to see, and I'm sure it is going to be like this, but like um, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm not a big UFC fan, but like whenever there's mm -hmm. a big event, like I'll watch UFC fights. Um, And the, the way it is like the, if you have ESPN plus, you can watch the like prelim fights there. But then once the main event starts, you have to pay an extra, like whatever, 60, 70 bucks to watch like the main pay-per-view. So I think that's what it's still going to be like for like a live football game. Right. It, it wouldn't, wouldn't you think like the ESPN plus subscription doesn't just give you that game. You'll also have to pay probably like 50 bucks to get said game as well an additional payment oh i i don't think that's i don't think that's right i think it's going to be included as part of espn plus okay that's what that's what that's more just me asking because like that's yeah. i know that's what they do with like with ufc espn plus does like you know you can watch the prelims for free yeah but then once the pay-per-view starts you're gonna have to pay some more to get the pay-per-view yeah no i don't uh, it won't i don't think it'll be like that i'm it's gonna okay. be included with you with your espn plus subscription yeah, you just gave me a slight heart attack. I was like, then why are we doing this? Me all? too. I was that's, <laughs> yeah, why, that's yeah. why I was just yeah, that's why I was just asking. That's why I was just asking. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for the clarification that allowed us to kind of slap it down. Yeah, I um, needed clarification too. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to have that conversation with my dad. Like, no, it's gonna be an extra 60 bucks. Man. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hell, and I'm already paying five dollars a month for it. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, if uh, you're having trouble for ESPN uh, Plus trying to get on TV, you can always contact Matt at I am Matt Burton on Twitter. <laughs> yes, yes, I will. It seems I'll walk like he has that it. part I'll figured out. I'll walk you through it. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, moving on, uh, July. It's uh, this is it. The last day. We're in the waning hours of July. Uh, the University of Oklahoma is up to sixth in the according to twenty four seven. I believe no seventh according to twenty four seven. I believe that number below that means they're fifth in composite. Uh, for their uh, team rankings of uh, recruiting, which from where things started off and OU was ranked like in the 40s, um, it's just been a massive, complete turnaround. Now, I, I'm not the biggest fan of talking about like individual commits and indiv individual things, but it's just the avalanche of this stuff. It's just seeing this movement. I mean, OU is, has been now crystal balled into getting uh, Vasquez. 
I, I believe that's how you say name. Uh, Vasek. Vasek. Yeah, Vasek, who is a, a, a legacy legacy player from University of Texas, who was not leaning towards Texas, who's leaning towards Oregon, but that dude was at the Texas game, Texas uh, recruiting event with Arch Manning over the weekend. And out of that, you get a bunch of crystal balls say he's going to commit to OU. So, I mean, it's just right in their backyard, right in Austin. Um, there, there's, you know, hush-hush rumors of a five-star defensive end who has given his uh, a silent uh, commitment to the University of Oklahoma. It, it's, it's stuff where it looks like Oklahoma really has a chance, according to 24-7, if you put in the class calculator, to eclipse the 300-point mark, which would be something OU's never done. OU's never gotten over 285. And there's a, a decent chance OU's going to have that top four, top three-ish type class if they just get the guys who it seems like they're going to get, um, can, can either one of you type chime in here? I mean, I thought Brent would do well. <laughs> I thought he would do better than late stage Bob Stoops in recruiting. You know, I didn't think he'd be finishing 15th, 13th, but I didn't think he'd be finishing, you know, right on the door of top five immediately. It, were we just all wrong? I mean, I, I, or was I wrong to have any sort of like dragging my feet about his recruiting prowess here? Or, I mean, one of you help me out here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we, you weren't wrong. I mean, we just didn't have a track record to go on, right? Um, you know, kind of one of the more interesting things that kind of came up this week to, uh, you know, there was a kid who's committed to Notre Dame. Uh, he's a safety, and I guess he was commit. He was visiting, pardon me, this weekend, visiting mm-hmm. OU. And, um, you know, a kind of edited clip came out. I think Barstool was where it kind of started from with this chopped up clip of Venables talking about how he views commitments and recruiting and, you know, doing the whole, it's a marriage thing. And, you know, this involved, this means, you know, that you're not going to take other visits every different place. And like, you know, all of a sudden it turned into this deal where it's like, Oh, well, you know, I mean, what a jerk, you know, and kids are going to change their minds, blah, blah, blah. And like, I actually, you know, tweeted out the video that it was from, for some reason, I don't even know why it started picking up traction because this was something that he said back in March. And the point of it was what Venable said was saying is he's like, if you commit to OU and we, and we ex- we're accepting your commitment, like we're not going to recruit around you either. We're not going to come to you at the last minute and say, we want you to gray shirt or we're going mm-hmm. this direction instead. The, his point was like, we're saying, you know, we're, we're going to make a commitment to you. And that, and if you want to take official visits to other places, you know, you need to decommit from us. Now the, the point being like, if once a, when a player decommits, then, you know, there's more clarity, I think for everybody involved, right? Like, you can go to the next guy you want to offer uh, who might fill that spot. You know, if the guy who decommits maybe wants to come back later, great, but that spot isn't being held for you anymore. It's not, you know, you don't have a reservation on that spot, I think was, was, was his point. And that's why he kept, he kept making the point. Like we tell kids do not commit to us until you are ready. Like don't do it. So this is kind of a long winded way of saying that, it's not so surprising to me if that's the message that they're giving players because that all of a sudden they'd have this rush here right before this dead period in August. Right. Because 
all these kids now, they've all, most of them, you know, they, a lot of them, I'm sure want to get this done before their football season starts. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have taken three, four, five official visits already. So, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, committing to OU in May and then deciding to take three or four official visits during the season. It's more a matter of they're closer to the end of their evaluative process. The thing, the thing with Brent that it, with all these comments coming back up in like the thing that they don't really make note of or try that I don't even think was in that clip is Brent saying, take all of your visits. Like don't, Right. You know, don't don't hold back on taking your visits. I want you to take every single visit that you want to take. Just don't commit to us unless like you're ready. We don't want you going someplace as an Oklahoma commit. That's not saying we don't want you to go places and go visit. That's just saying, hey, we don't want you to, you know, go somewhere as an OU commit, because then are you really committed if you're visiting somewhere? So, I mean, like. I get it. I get, I guess I get the backlash that he gets from that, but not really. I mean, not really. Once you like take into account everything that Brent is saying, where they just completely forget the fact to me where he's like, no, we want you to take every single one of your visits. Make sure that you take all the visits and make sure that OU is right for you. Like, but don't just take an OU visit and be like, oh man, I love this. I'm going to commit here. And then, Next week, I'm going to Bama and A&M and Ohio State or Texas or whoever, like, you know. So, I mean, I, I, I think that part just gets looked over a little bit too much. Well, there's yeah, also, I'm, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, there's also, I mean, I cannot remember who wrote the article, but it's somewhat recent within the last two months, basically saying, like, you need to get the last visit, like, you know, if of, of a recruit before they have their announcement. Because like if you're the last part, the last team they visited, the chances of you being the pick is like astronomical. And OU is kind of playing that on the other side of it. Like Alan said, I mean, yeah. they may visit OU number two or whatever. And Brent's like, hey, don't commit yet. You've got a couple more recruits. You got a couple more visits you want to do, unless you're going to cancel those. You know, it's like I mean, yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of an ultimatum there to a little degree. Nothing kind of like he's saying, you know, he, you know we just want this public so we can know. Because when coaches start reaching out to other 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 recruits and stuff, and, and they're like, maybe like, hey, I, I thought so and so was committed. It's like, well, it's kind of iffy, it's kind of wishy washy. We got a spot, maybe. You know, it's very like it's just the clarity of stuff. And OU kind of going about this, and honestly, just a very old style. I know um, Josh, um, I cannot I cannot pronounce. Uh, McQuistion was talk, talking about on Scoop saying like he just didn't like this style. He didn't think it was like of the time you know, of the time of player empowerment and player movement in NIL that kind of have this hard-nosed, hard-fast rule. But now you have stuff, I mean, like, I don't know if you guys were, I was up at midnight uh, reading uh, reading tweets about AM saying, hey, we've got the USC five-star commit in College Station right now. Plane just landed. I mean, it's yeah. like madness. Like, I was, and I was kind of, I was like, oh, man, this would be hilarious <laughs> if this mm-hmm. would happen in any way, shape, or form. And then you got Lincoln Riley at 1 a.m. or whatever t- tweeting pictures of the California sunset. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like, what is this? Like this weird little scorned girlfriend, like, oh, I don't miss you, but look how great it is out here <laughs> type of stuff. Yeah. But if OU, it's going to be pretty cut and dry. I don't think we're going to be confused about where OU stands. This is just, but this is stuff. just all semantic bullshit, man. Like, it is. I mean, like, if, 
if I say, okay, I'm committed to school X and then, you know, three months later decide to flip my commitment somewhere else. Well, I mean, who cares if I was committed three months ago, you know what I mean? Like, so if the, if, if you know, you want to take other official visits and you says, okay, then you're going to have to decommit from us. Like, you know, I mean, you still got a chance to get back. I mean, it's not like what you're saying. We're, we're not going to, we're pulling your offer or we're not going to, yeah. uh, you know, you know, recruit you anymore unless someone else who wants yeah. to be here comes along and takes your offer. Like, I don't know, man. Like to me, there's a confidence in that kind of approach too, though, that I like, and I think is a good way of marketing yourself. You know, I mean, I, I'm not big on the whole, you know, well, when with you or when without you, or we get who we, who we're supposed to get, because like that can just be a crutch for coaches yeah. recruiting. But I mean, in this case, you know, if another player is dying to take that spot and you don't want it, or you want to go look somewhere else, like, you know, that's fine. You should go do that. But you know, another player might come in and take it like at least at least venables is being upfront about this right and on top of that he's also not you know he's also explicitly saying like if you commit to us and we accept and if we accept your commitment like we're committed to you too like it's a two-way street you know there's not going to be us kind of work trying to work around you later in the process like if he was saying you have to commit to us you can't look around but hey we might look around that would be a completely different story. Yeah. I, I don't, to me, I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is a very confident approach in my opinion. I, I, that part of it, I like. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff, uh, and I've mentioned before, I mean, I went to, I went to Southeastern Oklahoma State University in acting directing degree. So I, I, I don't know why I thought that was going to be majorly prosperous for me. <laughs> uh, but I, I remember going to these cattle call auditions in Alabama and in uh, Mississippi and stuff. It's like this big Southeastern, not the Southern conference, but a big like theater conference. And you're in line with 900 other dudes <laughs> and there's 80 companies yeah. and they're trying to hire 10 spots. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, y- y- you've got to be in there. You got to be willing. You got, and they say, Hey, we want to do 10 callbacks. Can you come up to the hotel room in five minutes? Like you have to say yes immediately. Or it's like, okay, well we have, we have the names of 50 other guys, you know, it's like just ready to go. And it's not like, as you said, it's not like, Oh, you're losing a, a four-star person and replacing them with a two-star. I mean, Oklahoma is Oklahoma. It it does that vibe of we are the defend the standard, you know, coach speak mm-hmm. type stuff does seem to be coming back pretty hot and heavy. Now, does it end up biting them in the ass on the on, on the long scale of this stuff? Maybe who knows? But it worked for Clemson. It's and, and right now, Clemson. it's working really well for OU. I mean, look at <laughs> you know they've they picked up nine different players this this month. Uh, you know they've got a, they're what number like we mentioned seventh in the composite yeah. rankings. They're going to get a lot more. Uh, you know who you know just haven't gone public yet, from what I can tell. So I don't know. To me, it's it's uh, this part of it so far. Venables is acing it. The, the only thing that I've seen right now that it, it really does is make me think people need to get off the internet. I had a very nice offline weekend of going outside. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had a bike ride, did been doing some house chores, finally put up some hardware on my, on my cabinets, which it's, is a bitch to do. Uh, uh, but people were saying stuff like, Oh, does this mean Brent, why is Brent Venables, uh, 
still going real hard after Peyton uh, Bowen because he's a Notre Dame commit. You know, he doesn't want he doesn't want them visiting other schools, but he's okay if them coming down and visiting him. And it's like this weird little mental gymnastics where it's like, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not saying, yeah. I mean, he's not saying he's not going to recruit kids who's committed to other places. Now, if he, if, if OU was going to say, we're only taking three safeties and he had three safeties, probably not. I mean, it does seem like he would hold his commitments and hold his word to those three guys, but it does seem like he's got, OU has room to take in another yeah. extremely talented player. So go get him. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's almost proving his point. Like, you know, Bowen isn't really committed to Notre Dame if he's willing to look around at other places, right? Like, yes. And uh, again, like the other thing that we need to keep in mind here is like, it's okay for these kids to change their mind. And for like, sure. if a kid change, if a kid doesn't want to go to OU, wants to decommit, wants to go somewhere, I like, I don't, I don't look at that as a problem. And I would hope that Venables doesn't either. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's more a matter of him saying, like, here's how we're going to treat a commitment. Like just laying it out there and being transparent about it. Yeah, that does seem to be the case. I don't think he he seems extremely genuine in in this process. Understanding he he himself went through this process to a certain degree, uh, much much different process than it is now. Seems to understand. Hey, this is this is a potential. This is a lifelong decision. Potentially, you know, you're, you're connected to this university. You're connected to the you know all the different movers and shakers after you graduate if you make the nfl if you don't make it to the nfl which most of these kids won't um so yeah it's interesting to, to see him kind of hold this stuff out um and i had a point i was going to talk about this one last thing about that but who knows it, it is weird though when you when you start seeing these brands again I, i'm just really really waiting for OU to start playing some football so we stop having the these quote-unquote national or large because those barstool sports uh, who tweeted out that little chopped up clip just to stop kind of going after the OU fan base just for free, free clicks and free stuff. I mean, OU needs to go out there, play some games and win them. Uh, just so this can go, we can get, we can get done with this. I'm ready for this to be over with. Yeah. Move, yeah, absolutely. Uh, moving on. Bill Plaschke uh, finally wrote an article about USC that did not seem to be ghostwritten by Lincoln Riley or Lincoln Riley's uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh public relations team basically uh holding lincoln riley to his words about what he expects out of this usc team this team that has uh i believe over 20 transfers into the roster um i mean hell i was listening to uh cover three today uh, even though i have like a personal vendetta against them unless they want to come onto the pod um and they even have usc playing and winning the pac-12 championship that's just because of the amount of talent they've gotten into the system uh, but Bill Plaschke wrote an article saying, hey, if Lincoln Riley is saying his own words, his expectation for this season is to win the championship. You do not play for second place. His expectation is to win the championship. And Bill Plaschke literally writes in plain words, then if you don't win the national championship, then your season is a failure. And uh, you need to get that straightened out because the LA market is not a college football market. And this, yeah, that's the support that you have garnered so quickly because you're the hot new thing will vanish pretty quickly. If you don't start winning stuff, this is a far, far departure from what we've, what we've been seeing out of ESPN and the athletic and anything, the players tribune, <laughs> uh, any and all things is, <laughs> is it, is just, you think this is just Bill Plaschke who is somewhat of a contrarian. Is it just him? Or do you think maybe there's been so much goodwill kind of flowing that it's, 
going to naturally start getting an undercurrent of let's actually start looking at this team within a real analytical eye at this point in time. I mean, or we think we're just going to keep riding this wave until they lose two or three games. I mean, for me, I look at it and just think, and Plashke's, uh, you know, he's a national LA based columnist, like this, taking this kind of position shouldn't be surprising to anybody. And, you know, it's not like Riley hasn't done any, I mean, you know, signed an enormous contract, you know, with the numbers that are, have been rumored out there, all the different investment that USC's made in Riley, uh, all the, um, you know, different, you know, the stuff about private planes and houses. And everything. I mean, you know, it, it seems like a very fair expectation on Plashke's part. And on top of that, the funny part is like Riley can't do anything to tamp down those expectations. I mean, again, it's a, it's kind of the, it's kind of a two way street here. And so far as, you know, Riley took that money. I think he understands like no one's going to be there for, Oh, well, you know, we need time to get this off the ground. I mean, yeah. the expectation should be it's time to time to go now. Yeah. This isn't going to be like a Matt rule or Dave Aranda at Baylor. Cause I think Matt had like a 10 year guaranteed contract uh, at Baylor, I believe, or something along those that lines. Sounds, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Like this is going to take a while. And if you really look at the roster, now, obviously, USC can, can gather talent much faster than Baylor can. But if you look at the roster where both of them are at, they're not too dissimilar about where they were when Matt walking into Baylor and where USC was and Lincoln Riley. Now, he's done a massive, massive transfer job to kind of get everyone, get a bunch of talent in there. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the thing is, I, I think he, he can't do the, whereas, you know, hey, we're just going to play football games and win as many as we can and, no, you can't do that. And he can't do that because if his whole recruiting pitch is, I'm the guy. <laughs> like, I am the dude. I am a top three coach in this in this sport. Uh, I, I just don't know. If, and I, I, I mean, my heart doesn't sing for him. You know, I don't have the little violin uh, going in the background. Uh, it, it just seems like he's been, he, he's of his own doing, painted himself in an extreme corner when you have teams like Utah and Oregon who seem more than able to beat them um, on the schedule and they have to play them. It's, I mean, I mean, Matt, I mean, you're, you're dealing with this stuff from like, you know, I mean, Alan and I, we're, we're just, we're just some blogger guys who just, who, I mean, okay. through Patreon and stuff. I mean, you're on the radio. I mean, you guys are way, way smarter than me, way smarter than me. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> it's true it's true um man my whole thing though that was that was my kind of initial reaction was like yeah he's getting paid a ton of money and and all that stuff that's great but the the pressure there like they're not gonna pay you that much just to go eight and four nine and three granted that's better than what clay helton was doing but and they paid him a long time to do it Right. But I mean, if you're shell, if you're like, all right, we're not paying play Hilton anymore. We're not paying for, you know, whatever this crap is that we've been putting on the field for however many years now. Um, that that's, they're not going to be, okay. how long are they going to be okay with that? Like, I'm not saying he's going to go eight and four, nine and three every single year, but I mean, they're, uh, as soon as Caleb Williams leaves, I know they still they got Malachi Nelson so far. I don't think they'll they'll ever struggle at quarterback, but man, that defense like 
how long is that going to last with i mean basically we actually we talked about this on the radio like it's basically going to be this season is basically going to be 2018 Oklahoma minus a Joe Moore award winning offensive line. Like that's, that's what it's going to be. Like it's going to be great skill position, great quarterback and not, and not as good of offensive line at all. Like that offensive line you had in 2018 was insane. And then just a terrible defense. Like, so it is he, how many games is he going to win? going okay we're gonna have to score 60 like we're gonna have to score 50 or 60 to have a chance to win this game so i i just don't know how long of a shelf life that has yeah i mean i never went out of my way ever to watch usc like i, I watch oklahoma football i i'm a bad national college like what's happening right now in college football i'm a bad fan for what they're wanting to do with the super conferences and stuff like i want to watch oklahoma football I watched the national championship this year. It's the first national championship I've watched in over a decade. Cause I was like, ah, I guess I need to watch it for the Patreon and stuff. And for the, we're going to talk about it. I'm like, Oh, he's not playing in it. So I didn't care, I, but I just watched it because it usually isn't as skilled or talented as watching NFL games, you know? So it's like, why am I going to watch two teams? I'm not interested in for a thing that I wish OU was playing for. <laughs> so I just never really quite watched USC, but I probably will be keeping, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to be some petty hate watching <laughs> this year, this year uh, for sure, before the whole thing circuits uh, starts rolling on for them. Uh, you know, if I, I don't even know how you watch Pac-12 games. Or, or <laughs> Is it like at midnight here on, on the Fox one or something? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've seen, I've seen a lot of late USC games in my time. Jesus. Uh, Moving on to, I mean, continuing expanding out west, the uh, Pac-12 and the we'll lump them in Pac-12 and the Big Ten Media Days uh, finished up not too long ago. We've been kind of on a slight hiatus. Um, the Pac-12, uh, who was it? the conference commissioner said they're not shopping. They're they're not open for business when it George comes to the, the, the big the Big Twelve teams. Uh, I don't think he understands what the I don't th- I think the uh, Big Twelve is not necessarily looking to uh, be, be p- plucked off in that manner. Um, do, do we think in two years there is a Pacific athletic conference in any way, shape or form, or, uh, is it cobbled together? Does there have to be, uh, as we've seen, uh, many of the types on Twitter or, you know, wax poetically about the need for there to be a West coast football conference. I mean, what benefit is Cal and Stanford have of playing a uh, Boise, <laughs> I mean, if it comes down to it or playing San Diego State, I mean, does this even exist in by the time the Big Ten makes their next move? I mean, well, yeah, because, I mean, what else are those schools going to do? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I guess you could say something like, well, Arizona and Arizona State, I mean, they'd be better off moving over to the Big 12. I don't really know why. Like, yeah. The, the money i mean you know the money is going to be pretty much the same i mean all these different combinations that people keep throwing out there like i just don't understand where they think the, the why they think this would be like you know accretive so to speak why this would in, increase the value of the different tv products um that they're that they're trying to offer i mean the pac 12 and the acc uh, who cares like it, how does that make anything better or or you know 
the Pac-12 picking off a few teams. Maybe I guess they may pick off a few teams from the Texas market, but I mean, you know, if you're assuming that the Big 12 is, you know, the market is rational, well, I mean, there aren't going to be many teams in the Big 12 that can add any value to what you get with the Pac-12, what you can put in the Pac-12 at this point. I just, I mean, this is all just, I'm very skeptical we'll see anything unless Notre Dame makes some does some kind of uh, move involving the Big Ten, and I'm skeptical about that. I think from what I can tell, I, I'm I'm just guessing everybody's going to be kind of holding in place. You know, um, I I just don't see it. Yeah, that, that's think, Rob. Go oh, sorry, it, sorry. The things that that got me of the Pac-12 media days was, um, I mean, George Klievkov's quotes that came out of there. I mean, he said, with regard to the Big 12 being open for business, which is what Brett Yormark said mm-hmm. at Big 12 Media Days, he said, we, George Klievkov said, we haven't decided if we're going shopping there or not. And, yeah, also, like, yeah. and also, he says, I've been spending four weeks trying to defend against grenades being lobbed by the Big 12, trying to destabilize our conference. I get why they're trying to destabilize us. Uh, George, your conference has already been destabilized, man. And it wasn't by the Big 12. It was by the Big <laughs> yeah. 10. It was by the Big 10. So um, that was just hilarious to me. And that makes me think that the uh, merger talks between Yormark and Klievkov, it all it was was just a measuring contest, for lack of a better yeah. word. And one of them was trying – they were just – it's basically uh, – you knew that wasn't going to happen because it's one of them – one of them is would would have had to have agreed to not be employed anymore. Basically, like that's basically what it was. So, like, no one they're like, no, we're I'm still gonna have I'm not gonna not have a job. So yeah, that, I just I thought that was hilarious. Just because George, it's already been destabilized, man. It's not. It wasn't by the Big Twelve. I'm sorry. Yeah, the teams that could, like we're talking about added value to this stuff or, you know, increase the size of the pie, the teams that could do that for the Big Big 12 would be Washington and Oregon. Like, I think those would be competitive brands that you could bring in to kind of help leverage stuff. It wouldn't be a ton. It's not like you're adding that you couldn't say, oh, now we've just like replaced Texas and uh, Oklahoma revenue-wise. But I do think they would bring in a similar, if not slightly larger than uh, a Oklahoma State or something like, or, you know, because it's Texas Tech, it's Houston, it's TCU. I think those would be there. Then uh, that's, and the only way to get them is if you do, this, is then you have to start doing some calculations of saying, how many of these other schools would we feel comfortable taking on diluting the, you know, the revenue stream in order to snag those two? You know, like you mentioned the, uh, the big rumors, the four corner schools, you know, you grab Utah, grab Colorado. Uh, and then the two Arizona schools, and it's like, okay, now Washington and Oregon are fucked. <laughs> they have to go somewhere, and the Big Ten's not knocking on their door, so now they have to come here. They, they, you know, that's kind of the that seems to be the play. But then, a point in time, it's like, well, you've diluted yourself so much. Does adding those two larger brands even matter? <laughs> you know, at that point in time, um, and, and that kind of bleeds into a little bit of what the, the Big Ten media days, a lot of those coaches and ADs, they seem kind of cool being where they are. You know, they, they, they don't seem – I think they all kind of see that. It's like, oh, cool, if we bring Oregon in, uh, my cut is just going to get smaller. 
<laughs> if I'm going to bring Washington in, my cut's going to get smaller. So, and then you've got teams like Northwestern Illinois. It's kind of like, well, maybe we should just all stay. We're all cool. Everyone, we're all good, right? Kumbaya. Um, but I know Rob Bowen, who's uh, we've had him on the Patreon many a time. You should do this at uh, patreon.com slash through the keyhole. It's only $4 a month. He, he's pretty certain if you just hold on to Washington and Oregon, you could just be the Pac-10 again and just hold on to it. I mean, it brings in enough to where you can be competitive in that second tier of conference, um, especially with some of the idea of them having neutral conference games in L.A. to hold on, yeah. quote, unquote, hold on to that L.A. market. Is that even a good idea for these teams? I mean, because you can tell they're not saying, hey, let's not try to add a, a San Diego State or something. There's like, no, we'll just rent a stadium. <laughs> and just play Utah versus Oregon in LA or whatever. I mean, it does seem like these teams are pretty hell bent on trying just to stay the Pac-10 or pay to stay the Pac-12. Um, and maybe that holds together. It just, I don't. It just seems like there's going to be a team on one either side of this picket line that's going to do something emotional at some point in time. Ah, man. See, like, I just, I mean, like, I think the emotional thing that one of these teams or schools might do would be something like Cal dropping football. (laughs) Like, like, I think that would be, and I don't think that would necessarily be an emotional system just so much as they just don't want to support a program anymore. But like, to me, that's the bigger kind of (laughs) issue here for the Pac-10 as opposed to these schools go anywhere. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand what the, what the value proposition would be. And, you know, I mean, you can say, Oh, well, uh, you know, if the big 12, if the big 12 steals four schools away from the pack was now the pack 10, you know, what would that would destabilize, you know, the whole conference? Well, I mean, maybe, or maybe Oregon and Washington just say, okay, well, we're going to go independent. <laughs> and so we'll sell our yeah. rights to we're going to sell our rights to Amazon or, you know, uh, Apple and we'll just do that. I mean, you know, it, it like, you know, you don't necessarily want to buy uh, an Arizona and Arizona State hoping that it's going to mean you can later on buy, <laughs> buy Oregon sure. and Washington. You know? sure, sure. So I just I don't know. I don't see, I just don't see much. I mean, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And on top of that, you think Stanford, you think Cal, you think Oregon and Washington want to be in a conference with central Florida or BYU or Houston. Like, no, yeah, it's just not, it's not realistic. Yeah. And, and probably that sort of stuff. It's just going to hold on longer. And, and again, like the, the, the statement from Rob again, um, you all should follow him on Twitter. Uh, man, I've forgotten his Twitter handle. It's like a beta rank sharp or something like that. But Rob Bowron, uh, he's even saying the next move, Notre Dame decides to stay. The next move is not until a decade. I mean, the ACC is not going to get blown up. The grant of rights is too crazy. We're not going to do anything until the next, the next re up and all this stuff and just be cool hanging around with this. What we have right now is what we're going to have for the foreseeable future. But it's not stopping anybody. It's not stopping me <laughs> from pretending. Hey, what if this team moved here? It's like NCAA uh, football on the on uh, PS5 or uh, you know Xbox. Um, it's like, hey, I'm gonna move this guy to that conference and this to this. It's just fantasy casting, uh, but it's pretty fun overall. We have a short episode. Uh, that's all we have written down. Um, I w- we wanted to kind of 
run this into we're getting into the season we're getting into fall camp starting guys are starting to go uh, football content's really starting to kick off uh, we wanted to tell in this with an interview that uh, alan kenny had of jason reed uh, not too long ago about um uh, run us some into that alan what oh you guys sure talk? yeah well, yeah well jason and i talked about his new book it's called the rise of the black uh quarterback it's about you know as as a the title would imply uh, the growth of black quarterbacks in the NFL uh, and professional football. Uh, it's also kind of a sociological look at how uh, that has mirrored, you know, uh, movement in society and, you know, also on a more micro level uh, within the NFL. Um, it was a really fascinating interview. Jason's a great guy. He's, you know, been around for a long time, uh, written for the Washington post. Now he's with ESPN and Anscape. Uh, and so, yeah, no, please. Uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun and this gives you just a, a little bit of a taste of what you can get by signing up for our Patreon, uh, account that's patreon.com through the, uh, backslash through the keyhole, just $4 a month. You can get, uh, more content like this. Yeah. And when the season happens, we'll have a post game, uh, post game rants and raves. Uh, and then we also have, uh, these types of interviews where we're trying to look at stuff again, hopefully from a cooler, like 10,000 foot level of really doing this stuff. Um, I, I, some of the stuff that was kind of blowing my mind. And I guess I, I really didn't know the full history of Warren moon. I knew he went to the CFL first, the Canadian football league. I didn't know he was undrafted. Like that's the stuff that's just wild. I mean, he won the, at that point in time, I think the pack eight player of the year uh, and just completely undrafted. It's not something you expect when you think of Warren moon. Um, but when you're talking about the other socionomical uh, social economic uh, patterns and movements. Um, if you guys are interested in that type of stuff, check out the book, uh, the warmth of others, the warmth of other sons, I believe uh, uh, very close very about the black migration from the South to uh, the, the Midwest uh, of the United States of America. Um, it is very interesting to read just about, you know, population migration and stuff, but um, it's going to be a cool interview um, for myself, Matt, and um and alan uh enjoy the interview and we will see you guys until the next time boomer hey thanks Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, co-host of Through the Keyhole, uh, brewed up by Vanessa House there in Oklahoma City. Uh, we got a uh, interview today with Jason Reed of ESPN and Anscape. He's a senior NFL writer, uh, author of the new book, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. So let's go ahead and uh, hop on in. The book is The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. The author is Jason Reed, senior NFL writer with ESPN and Anscape. He is joining us this morning from Las Vegas, where he's at the Raiders training camp to talk a little bit about his new project here. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us, man. Hey, anytime. Thank you for having me. So I guess I want to start off, you know, obviously I, I – it's clear what motivated you to write the book. I mean, it's a, it's a compelling story. Was there a moment or uh, a person, an interaction, anything like that, that made you think, though, like, okay, I really do need to write a book about uh, the history of black quarterbacks in professional football? Well, I think the, the main thing was just back 
in 2019, I had written a, I had kind of helmed a project about African American quarterbacks in the league that year. Because going into the season, it just seemed to me that, and that was the NFL's 100th season. It just seemed to me that there were all these superstar black quarterbacks, and I thought these guys were going to have a great year. And it's something that just we had not seen in the history of the NFL. Yes, there've been black quarterbacks and there've been more and more black quarterbacks, you know, after the, the late sixties and seventies. And really, you really started seeing black quarterbacks in the late eighties and, and early nineties, but there had never been such a collection, a group of African-American superstar quarterbacks who weren't yet even in the prime of their careers, most of them. So after doing that project, um, after completing that project, I was approached by some people about, hey, we think there's a book here. And um, I just felt like, all right, well, let me let me delve in, you know, dive into this thing in a way where not I'm not just focusing on one season, but I'm focusing on the history of this journey of black men at the quarterback position in the NFL. So I I acted as if I didn't know anything about the subject matter. I started from scratch and like 75 interviews and uh, 87, 88,000 words later, um, <laughs> this will be Right. You know, that, and, but you, I, it's kind of astounding to me that you were able to write this book that quickly because, you know, I'm, I'm about halfway through. But, I mean, this is a, a deep historical dive, and it's not just, you know, the, the history of individuals, but, I mean, this is a sociological project, right? I mean, can you talk a little bit about the process of researching? How much, how much of your time was spent between NFL versus maybe looking at, you know, talking with, I don't know, history scholars or something like that? Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that because that that's one of the things that I'm hoping people will take away from the book that this isn't a book just about not let me let me let me rephrase it because I don't want to make it sound like if the book was just about uh NFL play and quarterback play in games, that would be a good book too. But I didn't want to do that. I I wanted to really look at this from a from a standpoint of the journey of the African American man in the 20th century, not just in, in, in the NFL, but it's really a parallel. When you talk about the ascent of black people writ large in America in that century, and you're talking about the, the journey of the African-American at the quarterback position in the NFL there, I mean, it, it, it really, it mirrors, um, you know, I felt that it was important to look at the sociological aspect of what we're talking about here in terms of the the struggle that that these these men endured. You know, I mean, we're talking about the civil rights movement. Um, we're talking about different things in history in the country, and yeah, I mean, that's a big part of the book. So, you know, you asked me, and I just gave you a very long winded answer. I hope I oh I hope no, I this is great. You. No, yeah. yeah, but you know, you asked me about dividing the time. Yeah, uh, much of the time with the book, in terms of my reporting and researching, was spent on that part of it, the sociology of it, how this, how what was going on in the country impacted what was going on on the field in terms of African-American men fighting to play this position that they love, the most important position in sports. So, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because that's something I hope people take away from the book. Right, and one of the the kind of early themes that you you get into a lot is that you have these you know 
black quarterbacks who could play professionally at the quarterback position. But, uh, you know, so much of the story seems to be about coaches or uh, organizations trying to um, shoehorn them into other positions. I mean, you know, there's an anecdote in there about, uh, you know, presenting the case for drafting Warren Moon in a professional franchise and, uh, you know, the one of the scouts or coaches, some a member of the organization, say immediately, "Well, like, can, have you talked to him about you know playing a different position besides quarterback?" I mean, and the idea to me of Warren Moon playing something besides quarterback just seems so laughable, you know? Yeah, now, right? Doesn't it? Yeah. And that's what struck me. You know, that that's what struck me when I was uh, doing the interview that led to that anecdote. It's like now, I mean, Warren Moon is the only African American quarterback in the pro football hall of fame. And, you know, you think about the quarterback position and and what he accomplished while he played both in the Canadian football league and the, and the national football league, it it seems like absurd that like you would, you, anyone would ask, well, did you, did you tell him about changing positions? But that was the common practice of the day, Uh, you know, back in the sixties and the seventies and really deep into the eighties as well, black, you know, black men who played quarterback in college, they were in the NFL. If you want to play in the NFL, you had to change positions. They became cornerbacks. They became wide receivers. It, It was just, it wasn't even like something that was discussed. It was, it was just like, like when you go to the airport, you know, you know, you're going to have to put your bags through a, a machine that, have, that, that, that will, you know, look and inspect the bag's contents. It was just something that was understood that that's just the way it is. And I, I think the situation with, with Moon, you know, we'll never know what Warren Moon would have accomplished from a statistical standpoint, from a winning standpoint, if when he's the co-pack, then the Pac-8 conference, he was a co-pack eight uh, player of the year, Pacific eight conference, which is now the Pacific 12. And he just didn't get drafted. I mean, you, you, it's, it's mind boggling. when You think about that, a, a, a player who is a quarterback who just won the, helped his team win the Rose bowl and was the conference's co-player of the year. And he didn't get drafted. Like you wouldn't see that in a major conference now. So yeah. Um, it, but it was just understood that, we don't pick black men to play quarterback in the NFL. So now that's, you know, I mean, you're looking around the landscape of the NFL and I mean, you know, you've got Patrick Mahomes, Mark Jackson, et cetera. I mean, you know, the NFL landscape is littered with, you know, with black quarterbacks. Was there, I guess, was there a moment that you feel like looking back, uh, changed a lot of the, uh, kind of perceptions and maybe in the last, you know, 20 to 30 years, or it was it, is it just a matter of, um, kind of, uh, persistence and evolution over time? It, it's a matter of money and self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Basically what right. happened was when the money started to get bigger and bigger and bigger, like these coaches and, and general managers, their personnel directors, they could not afford to overlook or to ignore anyone who could help them win games and stay employed. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it just became a situation where it was really green, you know, that, that became the pr- predominant color because what happened was, you know, you, 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 you have, you have to win. There's the pressure to win in the NFL on coaches and general manager. It's palpable. Okay. Because these owners, 
you know, they, they have these billion dollar franchises and they and they want to they want to keep packing the fans in and they want the concessions and the parking and the merchandise and all that. And so if you're a general manager, if you're a head coach, it, it, it no longer became feasible to ignore people who potentially could help you win. And quarterback is the most important position in professional sports. You know, so and I look back at the 1999 NFL draft where three African-American quarterbacks, Donald McNabb, uh, Achilles Smith, and Dante Culpepper were all taken in the first round. That had never happened before. And to me, that was an acknowledgement by the league that, okay, like there are enough of these guys out there who can help us win. And we can't simply not take someone at that position because the person's black. So do you feel like the prior to that, that coaches just didn't believe they could win with black quarterbacks or was it, I mean, you know, uh, some, was there something else? Or was it just in matters of, um, you know, perceptions about, I don't know, intelligence or leadership or, or what have you, or, you know, I mean, was it, or was it just, you know, patent racism? I mean, what, how, how would you explain that part of it? Yeah, I would, I would say all of the above. Right. Um, there was, there was a widespread belief. I mean, again, the, not just widespread, the, the belief among NFL owners and general managers and coaches was that first of all, black men did not possess the intelligence Mm-hmm. the intellect to play that position because it's a very cerebral position. Uh, the other thing was they felt that black men didn't have the heart to withstand the punishment and play that position. And then the other big thing was that they felt that white men would not follow black men because black men aren't leaders. That that was the perception. That was the belief. Um, and so, you know, when you have things that are so stacked against you in terms of you know, the people who can, you know, who the, the decision makers in the NFL, the people can, you know, who hold the marionette strings, when, when this is what they think of all black men at that position, I mean, they didn't have a chance. Right. Yeah. And you, you mentioned all of the above. I mean, exactly. It's, you know, the, the race, the racism feeds into how you perceive, yeah, their, their abilities. Right. I mean, that's just the way, it, the way it goes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's an interesting um, kind of parallel because now you look, you think about, at least for me, I think about uh, the black men in the NFL who have done so much in terms of leadership, even just socially that, you know, the, uh, you know, protests and uh, lean social movements or, you know, I mean, I, gosh, has anyone done more to, uh, you know, bringing into consciousness police brutality and systemic racism than Colin Kaepernick. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's such a fascinating dichotomy to think that that you had this perception that you know black men couldn't lead, and now you look at the, uh, you know kind of the roles they're playing in terms of leadership among players and society right now. Yeah, it kind of turns the whole thing on its head, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, what you said is obviously very true. Kaepernick, the the stance that he took, um, it it definitely led to glo- uh, global uh, right. 
awareness and 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 definitely change within this country. And then, you know, I'd also say Patrick Mahomes, you know, in terms of in terms of the NFL, like when Kaepernick made his stance, it was such a shock to the NFL because, you know, quarterbacks are the elite players in the league. They make the most money. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're the de facto partners with the, with the owners in growing the league. Um, and, and it was such a shock to the system for the NFL that a quarterback of all people, you know, who has benefited so much from what the NFL has become would do that. But then, Mahomes forced the NFL to go to a new place because when he got when he joined in that uh, the video that players made back in 2020 and said, "Hey, look, you know, Black Lives Matter." When he said Black Lives Matter in that video, it it forced the NFL to reevaluate its position. It, it it prompted Commissioner Roger Goodell to go on video and say Black Lives Matter when no one in the league office was even touching that before that. So, yeah, I, I mean, you talk about leadership, that's leadership. Behind the scenes, uh, how often yeah. do you, are you talking with players about, about the frustrations they might have with NFL ownership? And, I mean, you know, the, the thing that really stuck out to me was back when Bob McNair said something to the effect of they can't be uh, negotiating with players because they didn't want, you know, the, the uh, inmates running the jail. I mean, that was so yeah. pejorative. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like your opinion doesn't even matter to us. I mean, how much frustration yeah. do you feel on their part? From, do you, well, do you, get from well you know, it's funny. I, 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 I wrote a column for ESPN um, about when that happened a few years back, and players were fur- furious. I mean, you know, the the, 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 ra- the, the, you know, the racial connotations with that also. Yeah, it was just like, ridiculous. You know, you know but um, it, not shocking to the players. I mean, the, the fact that he said that um, it, it was in a negotiating session, I believe, or um, it wasn't said publicly, right? Uh, but it got out. And, you know, if, if, remember, if memory serves, it wasn't said publicly, but it got out. But, yeah, I mean, this is something players are aware of. You know, they, they, they get that this is the perception. This is the perception they have of how owners think of them. And, look, I, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not unfounded. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. you know, when, when comments are made, it's like, well, yeah, this, this, they, this is what they think of us. So, you know, there's frustration but not surprise because – Oh, because players understand, you know, the, the power dynamic. Well, let's talk about about the media. I mean, you're also seeing more and more black journalists like yourself who are involved in covering uh, the league, who have, you know, prominent positions, uh, you know, media networks and what have you. I mean, how much do you feel like, you know, that kind of evolution is also changing how uh, we talk about or think about uh, the dynamics of the NFL? Well, clearly it has. I mean, you know, uh, I'm I'm a I started out as a newspaper reporter, and you know, newspapers were some of the most historically racist institutions in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm just that's just a fact. And um, in terms of you know coverage, it, it's a fallacy that reporters are neutral. We all bring our 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 upbringing and our and our thoughts and our and the things that have shaped us to everything we do now you know as a reporter what i always try to strive to do is be fair because i think being neutral is 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 just it's 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 not possible okay we're human beings yeah but i you know i strive i always strive as a reporter to be fair and 
if there if there are people who come from a similar background as the people they're covering, they're going to know more just you know as a as a baseline at a baseline level about those people than people who don't come from a similar background. I mean that's just the way it is. And one one of my um, favorite chapters in the book is about Colin Kaepernick. Um, and I tell the the I I tell the 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 story of the chapter through the uh, through the eyes of Steve Weish, who is a um, a great uh, a, a great journalist, longtime NFL reporter, works for the NFL Network, has worked for them for a long time, and he was the one who broke the story on Kaepernick uh, protesting. And you know, I spent a lot of time talking to Steve about the night that he broke that story and what was going through his mind and the conversation he had with Colin. But, you know, Steve is a black man. And so there were things that he understood about what Kaepernick was doing and where this could go that I don't know. Well, no, I'm sure of it, that, that a white reporter who did not share a similar background would not have seen. So, yeah, clearly having African-American men and, and women in positions within the media, uh, you know, high-profile positions, it clearly has changed and shaped media coverage of the NFL. Right, right. Well, you know, I guess maybe kind of looking forward, I mean, what are are there any kind of themes or, or trends you're picking up on, stuff that you're going to be watching, maybe not just in terms of on the field this season, but just the vibes, you know what I mean, in terms of uh, – the NFL going forward, what kind of uh, tensions there are or, uh, you know, kind of issues that, you know, feel like maybe ultimately kind of bubbling up to the surface? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing right now and what I'm going to be watching for this whole year is the situation with black coaches and, and, and the lack of diversity among coaches and what's and what is occurring as a result of that. You know, Brian Flores the former coach of the Miami head coach of Miami Dolphins, now a Pittsburgh Steelers assistant, you know, is suing the league for racial discrimination. Two other coaches have joined his lawsuit. Um, the NFL is, has, they, you know, they will tell you it's not as a response to Flores' lawsuit, but because, you know, they, they, they see that there are issues there as well. You know, implementing all these programs to, to try to increase minority representation in coaching. So, this is really the next big area area. Um, and, and I, in terms of, for me, that's something I'm going to be watching, you know, all season and into the off season. And it's interesting there too, because there's a similar parallel to what you write about in the book with, uh, African-American quarterbacks, because, you know, the traditional pipeline to, uh, head coaching jobs has always been in, uh, offensive coordinators, especially, you know, right now at the moment. And, you know, quarterback coaches becoming offensive coordinators. So there's also that issue of how many uh, black candidates are coming up through that part of the pipeline, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, there are only two black offensive coordinators in the NFL right now. There are 32 teams. And we know that, you know, head coaches often come from that side of the ball. Uh, you know, the, these owners, if you know, if you get yourself a franchise quarterback and you got to pay the guy two hundred million dollars, you want a coach who's going to be able to, you, know, and you think, maximize his ability. So you're talking about quarterback coaches, you're talking about offensive coordinators when you're going to pick a head coach. Mm -hmm. So and there are only two 
black men who are offensive coordinators. So yeah, th- this is it. It is uh, parallel with the with the book, and um, you know who knows it might be a book down the road. <laughs> All right. Well, Jason, I've taken up so much of your time this morning, I, but this has been fascinating. It's a great book uh, so far. You know, I'm halfway. Like I mentioned, I'm halfway through it. Um, and really appreciate your time. Uh, let everybody know where they can uh, find you uh, on uh, Twitter and whatnot. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's uh, at Jay Reed ESPN. Um, and uh, yeah, they can. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter and, um, you know, they can get me there and uh, they can uh, get the book wherever books are sold on August 2nd or they can pre order it. All right. Well, thanks again. That's great, Jason. And uh, keep up the great work. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs>